if you read any write-up about the causes that led to the First World War, you'll always find at least one paragraph that includes some form of the words secret treaty. A network of alliances and agreements signed by countries A and B stipulating that they would attack, or maybe not attack, country C if conditions 1, 2, or 3 were met, were everywhere around Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In theory, these were to give the individual countries who signed them some sort of leg up if and when the next conflict broke out. Instead, they became gigantic diplomatic dominoes that lined up ever so nicely until in the summer of 1914, they began to topple and threw most of Europe into the so-called war to end all wars in less than two months. And I would also like to add here that it was another secret diplomatic cable that helped pull the U.S. into that war. Arthur Zimmerman, a high-ranking official in Germany's foreign office, sent a telegram to the Empire's ambassador in Mexico, with instructions in case America did go to war over Germany's use of unrestricted submarine warfare. Basically, Zimmerman told the ambassador to promise Mexico that Germany would be an ally and provide financial backing for a proposed attack on the Southwest and a retaking of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. When the British intercepted and decoded this telegram, and helpfully passed it along to the U.S., it caused enough of an outcry and helped move the American public closer to the war. The point that I'm trying to make here is that secret treaties, while oftentimes necessary, have a historical precedent of blowing up in the faces of those making them. And that is going to hold true for our current story thread as well. Because in late 1883, a secret deal in Pleasant Valley was struck, one that would change the community's social landscape and set everyone on a course for a bloody end. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 121, The Pleasant Valley War, Part 2, The Treaty of War. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we got the lay of the land in a little isolated spot called Pleasant Valley, and were introduced to the Tewksbury and Graham families. Though, I do need to start today off with a small correction. Toward the end of last week's episode, I mentioned how the Graham brothers, Johnny and Tom, had hired Jim Tewksbury to help on the ranch and to herd some cows that they both had and had not bought from William J. Flake. Said Jim Tewksbury would also later testify in court about this cattle drive. Well, all that is true, except I have the wrong person. I said that it was James Denning Tewksbury, known as Jim, who was the patriarch of the family. At the time, I thought it was weird that they hired him because he was so much older than them, but chalked it up to the Grahams wanting to hire experience. Turns out I should have gone with my instinct because the Grahams did hire Jim Tewksbury, but they hired Jim, the son of Jim Tewksbury, to be their ranch hand. Jim was uh, Jim's third oldest son after John and Ed, and I just wanted to make sure we were both straight on that before continuing. But since we now are, 
Let's continue with our story. If you'll remember, I ended last week with the account of two things happening at the end of 1882. One was the Grams driving 200 head of cattle, including a few extra, from William J. Flake's operation to their own. The second was them branding a couple of cows that belonged to James Stinson. And here I actually have to insert a second correction. For some reason last week I called him James Stinton, somehow switching out an S for a T, but he's definitely James Stinson. Alright, now we have to pause a moment to talk about cattle rustling before we come back around to Stinson. Though today we picture the cowboy as an icon of a simpler time, when all you needed was a horse, a few head of cattle, and a gentleman's coat of honor, that was not always the case. As I pointed out when discussing the cowboy faction around Tombstone back in episode 85, the term cowboy was used more often as a slur, as an insult to men who usually had fled Texas to avoid the law, and to whom rustling was second nature. And this carries through to Pleasant Valley as well. Author Eduardo Obregón Pagán writes that when the Grams arrived, they found an active black market for livestock that ran right through their new home. An appetite for horses and cattle down in Mexico, and really across the whole Arizona Territory, and the sudden abundance of said animals along the Colorado Plateau meant that if you could get your hands on some up north, and then move them clandestinely down south, you could make some money. One local paper had pages and pages full of notices of missing cattle, horses, and sheep, Now, it doesn't appear that the Grams jumped directly into obtaining stolen cattle themselves, at least at first, but rather, they let their land be used for the moving of said cattle. Though we do know that relatives of the Grams, who followed them into Arizona, as well as their friends, were directly involved in this mass rustling. We also have to realize that there were two types of rustling happening. The first was some very low-key, nod-wink, whoops-I-branded-the-wrong-cow rustling. Basically, all the cattle were turned out to the same pasture, and during the fall, the local ranchers would have a rodeo to round up their animals, so all the cows are kind of mixing. And that spelled opportunity. One contemporary source says that the Rim Country ranchers were branding each other's cattle, quote-unquote, by mistake, with some regularity. Small operators would also practice mavericking, or taking unbranded calves from their mothers, or sleepering, which means giving calves earmarks but not brands. Other cowboys would see the earmarks and just assume that the calves had brands. Eventually, when the calves were old enough to leave their mothers, the rustlers then changed the earmarks to their own and gave them their brand. And I should point out here, too, that cowboys were experts at brand forgeries. They all carried what were known as running irons, which were specifically shaped tools that could be heated and used to alter brands on cattle. One Texan cowboy claimed that he could make a brand using a running iron better than he could draw using ink and paper. And law enforcement in all of this was practically useless, as the courts were days away, and if you did go that route, they were packed by people making claims about neighbors stealing their cattle. It was incredibly difficult to prove, as both evidence and witnesses willing to testify were in short supply. And so most of these cases were just thrown out without anyone getting anything close to satisfaction. 
None of my sources say this directly, but from my reading, it seems that everyone sort of suspected that a few cows would go missing here and wind up there. So then they made sure a few cows would go missing there and wind up here. Sort of an illegal take-a-penny-leave-a-penny understanding. And the second type of wrestling is probably the kind of wrestling you're thinking about, which is more organized and larger and hit mainly large operations. But I'm going to concentrate on that first level, the whoops-I-branded-the-wrong-cow level. Because at the end of the day, no one was really happy about this wrestling. Which leads us back to James Stinson. Stinson had been one of the first people to run cattle through Pleasant Valley, having moved his operation there sometime after selling his land to William J. Flake. And here we get some disagreement in my sources about timing, but it, it appears that sometime between 1880 and 1883, he had roughly 600 cattle grazing in Pleasant Valley. While a dwarf when compared with the truly large operations, like the hash knife outfit we talked about two episodes ago, he was still the biggest fish in the small pond that was Pleasant Valley. His Mormon neighbors remembered him as a, quote, jolly Irishman of dubious morals. And author Daniel Justin Herman in his book Hell on the Range described him as being well-dressed, including sealskin chaps, silver spurs, and a big sombrero adorned with silver birds. However, we also know that the Tewksbury's were not his biggest fans. Now, a couple of sources say that Stinson had hired the Grahams and the Tewksbury's to help watch over his cattle in 1883, but given what we're going to cover in the rest of the episode, that seems very unlikely, or at the very least, the wrong date. And we know from a few contemporary sources that the Tewksbury's resented Stinson as being high-handed, after he had tried to buy out all the settlers in Pleasant Valley in order to control the grazing rights. There was also the rumor that Stinson had been induced to come to the valley by neighbors to help freeze the Tewksbury's out. Amateur historian Jinx Pyle even quotes one old-timer's written recollection that Ed Tewksbury had said the family, quote, tried to get along with Stinson when he first came, but it was impossible, so we stole a few head of cattle just to torment the old man, end quote. And steal them, the Grams and the Tewksbury's did. Stinson's brand was a stylized but rather simple T-mark on the left side or hip, something that could be easily incorporated into many other brands, including the TE design that Tom Graham and Ed Tewksbury used as a joint brand. In fact, Stinson would claim in a 1930 newspaper interview that the whole Pleasant Valley War started with men stealing his cattle and then fighting over their ill-gotten animals. And what made things all the easier is the fact that Stinson was an absentee ranch owner. By at least 1882, but possibly as early as 1880, he had moved down to the Salt River Valley, and so left the actual running of his outfit to others. And that's why I think it's possible he hired both the Grahams and the Tewksbury's at some point, though probably not after 1882 for reasons we will now get into. So remember how I said that in 1882 the Grahams took and branded some of Stinson's cows? Well, they did, but they were not the only ones. Stinson was back in Pleasant Valley for the fall 1882 rodeo, 
and afterward apparently discovered that some calves bearing a Tewksbury brand were nursing on his cows, meaning that the Tewksburys had, quote-unquote, accidentally branded some of his animals. Well, they did claim it was an accident, someone calling out the wrong brand during the roundup, but Stinson did not believe them. So Ed Tewksbury offered to vent the calves, meaning that he would cross out their brand and give them back to Stinson. However, the old man would not hear of it and let it be known that he would be prosecuting the entire family for cattle rustling. Events get very muddled here, and there are about four or five different versions of what happened. However, everyone agrees that by December 1882, Stinson changed his mind about prosecuting at some point for some reason. It's possible that Ed Tewksbury had even written to Stinson after tempers had cooled to again reassure him that no malice had been intended and they would gladly hand over the calves. And so most sources agree that Stinson decided to let the Tewksburys vent the animals. Also in most tellings, it was up to his 24-year-old ranch manager, John Gilliland, to convey this decision. And now we really wade into a lot of he-said-she-said business, as there are several versions of why Gilliland rode up to the Tewksbury homestead in January 1883. In fact, there's not even agreement on when he actually went, as I've seen everything from January 1st up to January 16th. And it's possible that he went up simply to deliver the message that Stinson said to vent the cattle in question. It's also possible that he went up to say, vent the cows, but with the added message of, don't let it happen again. But a third version is that he went, with a few shots of liquid courage in him, to inspect the Tewksbury's animals to catch the family red-handed with stolen cattle. And just to muddle already murky waters, it's possible he went without any input from Stinson at all. With him, Gilliland took his cousin, who was only a teenage boy, there is some disagreement as to his age, and a Mexican ranch hand who had been working for Stinson for some time. This trio found the Tewksbury brothers, along with Johnny and Tom Graham, building a new cabin for John Tewksbury and his new wife. Still think it's weird that he married his stepsister, but that's not important at the moment. This is when we get to one of those moments where history tells us the what, but can't exactly tell us the why or how. Gilliland and Ed Tewksbury apparently exchanged some words, but both sides strongly disagree about what was said. Gilliland and others maintained that Ed asked if they were looking for someone. Gilliland replied no, but Ed said, well, I am, then drew his revolver and began firing. The Tewksbury version is that Ed asked if they were looking for someone, and Gilliland replied with, you, you son of an expletive deleted, and then drew his pistol and began firing. Whatever was said, soon a full-on shootout was in process, with Gilliland snapping off around at Ed, but it went over the man's head. A second shot would also miss, but it went through John Graham's hat. Roughly a dozen bullets were traded during this, though most of those came from the Grahams and the Tewksburys. Gilliland's cousin didn't get off a shot with his 22 caliber rifle, but he was shot in the hip as he turned to flee. The Mexican ranch hand tried to get out his revolver, but his horse was bucking so badly and a rope got in the way of him being able to pull out the weapon. None of the men on the Tewksbury homestead were shot, but Gilliland did take a bullet to the shoulder. 
So news of this shootout, or should I say sensationalized accounts of this shootout, would shortly spread everywhere, and it was soon being told that Gillen's cousin had been killed, which was definitely not the case. But upon hearing this rumor, the boy's uncle, who lived in Rye, immediately filed a complaint in Green Valley, known to us today as Payson. And in the end, the Graham and the Tewksbury brothers, minus Ed Tewksbury and Johnny Graham, were actually under arrest. However, no one showed up to testify against them, and seeing as the teenager hadn't actually died, the case was dismissed. But the reason that Ed Tewksbury and Johnny Graham were not placed under arrest is because immediately following the shootout, they had set out for Prescott to file charges against Gilliland and his associates for assault with the intent to murder them. And the reason they rode to Prescott, by the way, is because that was the county seat. Believe it or not, Pleasant Valley was still in the absolutely massive Yavapai County at the time. Now, a grand jury decided that the case should go to trial. So over the winter months of 1883, witnesses were called from what I'm just going to start calling Payson from here on out and Pleasant Valley to give statements and then return for the trial. The only one excused was Gilliland's cousin, who was in no shape whatsoever to travel. And I should stress here that reporting to Prescott was more than just an inconvenience. It meant days of travel over incredibly rough country, camping out and finding a spot in town, all in the dead of winter. When the trial finally got going that spring, one source says it was as late as May, the jury heard two days worth of testimony. Their main concern was figuring out who shot first. After that, any gunplay by the opposing party was self-defense and allowable under territorial law. But both sides swore up and down that the other side had started it. With no new information or witnesses coming forward, a decision was impossible and the case was just simply thrown out. But there are two important things to note from this trial. The first is the youngest Tewksbury brother, Frank, caught the measles sometime during the slog over to Prescott, and he would actually die back in Pleasant Valley. His health had never been the greatest, and the entire clan was incensed that he had been called to testify at all. As he had originally explained to the authorities in Payson, he hadn't been at the cabin during the shooting, but was driving a wagon elsewhere. The fact that he had died because of being dragged across the territory in the dead of winter to give needless testimony stoked an enmity in the Tewksbury's for Stinson that would never simmer down. And the second thing is that throughout all this trial, the Tewksbury's and the Grahams had each other's backs. They presented a united front against Stinson and Gilliland during the trial. By all accounts, they were still the best of friends at this point, and we can't forget that they had all been together helping John Tewksbury build a new cabin when this incident took place. It was also probably lost on no one that if Ed Tewksbury hadn't shot back at Gilliland, the ranch foreman's second shot probably would have taken off a little more of Johnny Graham than just his hat. In fact, author Eduardo Obregón Pagán points out that even in the darkest days of the Tewksbury-Graham feud, the Grahams never changed their story about what had happened with Gilliland that morning. That implies that their version may have been closest to the truth, but they didn't change their story even when their relationship with their neighbors had soured to the point of armed conflict. 
So with the dust-up over Gilliland now over, Stinson's position in the valley still hadn't changed that much. The Tewksberries and the Grams were still thick as thieves and probably still skimming off some of his herd. So, he decided to turn to that age-old tactic that was espoused by Machiavelli, but used the world over since time immemorial. Divide and conquer. Historians are still arguing about what ultimately turned the Grams against their one-time staunch allies, the Tewksberries. Obregón Pagán says that over the summer of 1883, there was some rupture in their fast friendship that neither family was really willing to discuss afterward. You'll also see it written out there that there was a Romeo and Juliet situation afoot, that a Tewksbury woman and a grand brother had become romantically evolved, and that this set the spark to the gunpowder. However, though Zingre would later take this thread and run with it in his based-on-a-true-story novel, To the Last Man, there is no hard evidence to support this conclusion. What we do have evidence of is Stinson simply changing tactics. He had a simple problem. People were stealing his cattle. And that's when he struck upon what seemed to be a simple solution. We don't know how it happened, but sometime in 1883, Stinson approached Johnny Graham with the deal. In exchange for receiving some of Stinson's cattle legally, Graham would report on any of his neighbors who were involved in rustling. In essence, Stinson bought off Johnny Graham to be his stool pigeon. And once again, we have to ask ourselves the question of why. Why would Johnny take this deal and turn against the very men who had invited him into Pleasant Valley and helped him set up his operation? And you'll find a few answers floating out there. The first is that he wanted the cattle badly. Remember from last week that Johnny and his brother Tom wanted to be cattle barons. They wanted to get rich quick like other men were doing in Arizona. And this could be the reason that Stinson approached them with this proposition. If he had gone to the Tewksbury's with the same deal, most likely they would have run him out of the valley on a rail for having even suggested it. The Tewksbury's didn't want prominence and riches fast like the Grams did, so that made Johnny and Tom the best targets for Stinson's scheme. If he could buy them off, they wouldn't steal from him anymore, and they would ensure that no one else did either. A second reason is suggested by Obregón Pagán. Apparently Johnny was deep in debt to his brother, and it wasn't just like a all-cover-lunch-next-time-we-go-out situation. He was badly in the hole. Before his death, Johnny apparently owed Tom $3,200, which was something like $90,000 in today's money. So, why did Johnny need the cash? Well, Obregón Pagán makes the assumption that Johnny had a gambling problem. While they were still in Globe working in their little minds, the brothers gained a reputation as gamblers, and it's possible that Johnny never outgrew that. Tom Graham's journals show that Johnny always was borrowing money over the winter months, when the brothers could be found in warmer climates like Globe or Phoenix, consequently where there was good gambling to be done. So if this theory is true, then Stinson's offer would have been even more appealing to Johnny. Stinson and Johnny Graham would enter into an honest-to-goodness contract, 
which was signed on November 14, 1883, but was not actually registered with the county until March 28, 1884. And since this was a duly registered, legally binding contract, we can actually read the details of what was promised. Now, many records from the territorial period were shipped off to Phoenix and subsequently destroyed during an episode of flooding that was so endemic on the Salt River in the days before the dams, and for the longest time, it seemed that this contract had suffered the same fate. But in 1986, author Don Dedera, who is one of my sources for these episodes, managed to track down a surviving copy of the contract in the Yavapai County Court, and it was attached to one of the court cases that we're going to talk about next episode. It's a very short contract that basically says that Graham will turn over any knowledge or evidence of anyone rustling from Stinson's operation. His payment would be 50 cattle, 25 cows and 25 calves, which would have had a value of roughly $1,250, which, you know, was a pretty hefty sum for the time. Both parties also agreed to mutually work together toward the common cause of justice, at least when it came to Stinson's operation. Finally, a note at the bottom promised that the cattle would be turned over once someone had been convicted of rustling. Now, even before the contract had been signed, John Graham had started making moves to show that he was distancing himself from the Tewksbury's. This all gets into some messy legal stuff about county-registered livestock brands, but let me try to put it as simple as I can. Tom Graham and Ed Tewksbury had a brand. It connected T-E for cattle they were running together, and some of which had definitely been taken from Stinson, whose brand, as I mentioned earlier, was a simple T that was the brand equivalent of leaving your car unlocked in a parking lot. But, on March 25th, 1884, Johnny Graham appeared in Prescott with some business to conduct. Claiming to be acting on the behest of his brother Tom, Johnny registered the connected T.E. brand, but he said the brand belonged to him and Tom alone. No mention is made of the Tewksbury's at all. He also registered more brands and went through a few more bureaucratic hoops that had the effect of shutting Ed Tewksbury out of any claims to the cattle. And this was another sign of the Graham's ambition. If they could freeze out Ed and his family, then suddenly they had twice the number of cattle than they had before. And if Ed and his brothers were in jail, say for stealing Stinson's cattle, well, that would make things all the more easy. And that's where the contract, signed just three days after Johnny registered these brands, comes into play. You can make the argument that everything we talked about in the past two episodes was just prologue, and that the Pleasant Valley War actually starts right here, with the signing of what some authors and historians dub the War Pact or the Treaty of War. Of course, this is not what the men involved called it, because this treaty wasn't meant to start any sort of conflict. For Stinson, it was supposed to separate his enemies, co-opt one of them, and keep his cattle from being rustled. For the Grams, this treaty was meant to boost their standing and take out a potential obstacle to them getting what they wanted. And I want to believe that neither side knew what they were about to unleash. In less than a year's time, Stinson would give up on Pleasant Valley altogether. And in three years, 
Johnny Graham would meet a violent end as part of the chaos this very treaty unleashed. And with that little teaser, I want to leave things here for this week. And actually, for this year. Next week is Christmas, and the week following that is New Year's, so there will be no new episodes as my family and I celebrate the holidays and host visiting VIPs. But come back and join me on January 8th as the Treaty of War becomes public knowledge and the legal difficulties it helps set up devolve quickly into violence. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.